This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing several high-yield pediatrics topics, including pediatric osteomyelitis, clubfoot, pediatric femur fractures, medial epicondyle fractures, lateral condyle fractures, and infantile Blount's disease. The questions that will be reviewed appeared on the Pediatrics Number 8 specialty exam on the OrthoBullets virtual curriculum. We will include a link in the show notes to take that exam if you have not done so already. The questions included in this episode will be reviewed by Dr. Vish Talwalkar, who is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the Shriners Hospitals for Children Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky. This is osteomyelitis, which you can see is another topic which is heavily covered in the in-training examination as well as on the boards. The question is defined as which of the following. We'll spend a little time going over some information about infection because this is, uh, like I said, a topic where it's heavily tested. So osteomyelitis is a common cause of limb pain and often there's a remote history of trauma associated with this, uh, which uh, makes sense because uh, trauma frequently will uh, create a hematoma which is then seeded uh, by uh, the uh, transient bacteremia that we all have in everyday activities. So hematogenous uh, infection or hematogenous seeding is the method uh, by which this occurs. And this occurs in children uh, more than adults because of their anatomy uh, that uh, consists of these uh, end uh, arterial loops in the metaphysis just proximal to the physis. And so in these regions they get metaphyseal sludging. Uh, children have an incompetent immune system and so they have a deficient reticular endothelial system so their ability to fight infection in this region is also diminished. Because of the uh, end uh, vascular loops, there is increased vascular permeability. So all these things are a setup for infection. And typically, this starts in the metaphysis of the long bones. The organisms are a little bit dependent on the environment or the, uh, uh, and the age of the patient. Uh, so Staph aureus continues to be the most common organism that we see uh, causing infection. It is becoming more frequent that this is a community-acquired methicillin-resistant Staph aureus in some locations. Kingella kingae is another uh, common pathogen that we see in cases where their culture doesn't immediately show anything. Uh, so you have to be sure that uh, in those cases that uh, the laboratory continues to hold that culture uh, and uh, also inoculates it into a CO2-rich medium because this can be a fastidious and slow-growing organism. Uh, in neonates, uh, group B strep and gram-negative organisms are a frequent cause of infection, and they ask this uh, frequently on the test as well. In sickle cell disease, Salmonella uh, is uh, the organism that is associated with it, although Staph aureus is still the most common organism uh, for osteomyelitis in these people. Haemophilus uh, influenza is uh, now an uncommon uh, cause of infection. It used to be a very common cause in the, in the younger child that due to the vaccine it has uh, essentially been eradicated as a uh, pathogen in osteomyelitis. Uh, it does appear in uh, those populations, however, that have not uh, immunized their children. Terminology is important to know as well. Uh, involucrum is a term that's used to describe new bone that's formed in an effort by the body to uh, sequester the uh, infection or uh, to uh, wall it off. Uh, the sequestrum uh, is the nidus of residual necrotic infected bone, which is, try which is being walled off. Uh, operative treatment of chronic osteomyelitis requires excision of the sequestrum. Once again, uh, returning to the question, you can see that uh, the correct answer is three, uh, that sequestrum is the necrotic uh, bone, uh, which is a nidus for infection uh, in chronic osteomyelitis, and most of you got that right as well. 
Moving on, a seven-year-old boy complains of worsening left knee pain over the last two weeks. He has been unable to bear weight through the left lower extremity for the past 24 hours. The knee and lower leg are warm and tender to palpation. Current temperature is 100.9 degrees Fahrenheit. And CRP is 11, which is elevated. A radiograph is provided in figure A. A joint aspiration yields two cc's of synovial fluid, demonstrating a cell count of 2,500. That's pretty unimpressive. And or, no organisms on gram stain. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? The radiograph they provide for you there uh, shows an AP view of bilateral knees uh, with normal physes. Clearly, this is a skeletally immature individual, and the patella also look uh, normal, and uh, the x-rays seem uh, normal uh, on both limbs. So osteomyelitis is a problem that presents clinically with warm, tender, swollen limbs, uh, or a limb if it's one side of infection. There may be a history of antecedent trauma. Uh, typically, they present with a limp or the unwillingness or inability to walk. They often have a fever. Uh, the laboratory markers that are uh, indicative of this uh, process uh, include uh, an elevated white count, uh, an elevated sedimentation rate, and an elevated C-reactive protein. And so these are important things uh, to be aware of and to order clinically. Uh, radiographs are often not very helpful in the early period, uh, even up to two weeks after uh, injury uh, before they start to show some signs. Uh, MRI can be a very helpful imaging modality to help guide aspiration and also in those scenarios uh, where there's not an obvious uh, area uh, that seems to be causing the discomfort or pain. So it's important to know that uh, the temporal relationship between CRP and SED rate. So sedimentation rate is typically uh, something that uh, uh, rises a little bit more slowly and remains elevated for much longer, whereas uh, C-reactive protein is elevated very early in the course of infection and then dramatically declines uh, after treatment is initiated. So the, uh, the time course for elevation and then a decline of CRP is a much better marker for early response to infection, whereas SED rate is something that's used as a, uh, a tracking uh, lab for uh, long-term uh, antibiotic therapy. So once again, a seven-year-old boy with knee pain over a couple of weeks with unwillingness to bear weight over the last 24 hours, so worsening knee pain. There's warmth and tenderness, uh, he is febrile, he has an elevated CRP, and a negative uh, joint aspiration. So in this uh, scenario, they're trying to tell you that there is an infectious process going on, but uh, it doesn't sound like it is septic arthritis uh, because the aspiration is normal. This is clubfoot. Three-year-old boy has been treated in the past with Ponseti casting, now presents with dynamic supination during gait. You're planning to perform an anterior tibialis transfer to the lateral column, or the lateral cuneiform. All of the following are true, except, so clubfoot is idiopathic in nature, uh, although the genetics are still being worked out, uh, there may be some familial association. Uh, anatomically, it's hindfoot quinovarus, forefoot supination anaductus, and midfoot cavus. You can see this photograph of a child with uh, bilateral uh, club feet uh, with the typical posture of the hindfoot, uh, a supinated adducted forefoot. Uh, and uh, it's difficult to see whether there's cavus there or not. Treatment consists uh, typically of uh, serial casting uh, via the Ponseti method. And the Ponseti method uh, emphasizes gentle manipulation in a stepwise fashion and correction of the deformities uh, also in a stepwise fashion, starting with correction of the cavus and uh, then progressing to correction of the adductus uh, as well as the varus and equinus of the hind foot uh, last uh, after uh, abduction of uh, 50 to 60 degrees is achieved. The casts are usually long leg casts. In fact, they're always long leg casts from hip to toes. 
And so uh, the mnemonic cave is a good way to remember the order of correction. Serial casting is usually followed by tenotomy at six to eight weeks after uh, the initiation of casting and then uh, uh, some form of abduction bracing for up to two to four years. Tibialis anterior transfer is uh, a common procedure. It is necessary in 10 to 30 percent of patients uh, who have uh, feet that are treated in this method uh, for recurrence uh, and typically occurs after the age of about two uh, in the age range from two to five years. Uh, the things that you'll see clinically in a child who may need a tibialis anterior tendon transfer uh, are that uh, they will have lateral weight bearing. They'll also have tibialis anterior activity in both swing and stance phase uh, and they have to have a flexible deformity so this is not an effective uh, method of treatment if the deformity is not flexible. So knowing this, a three-year-old who has previously been treated now has a, a recurrence with dynamic supination. Uh, you're planning a tibant tendon transfer to the lateral cuneiform, which is the usual site. The preferred response is four, so this is an accept question. So all of the other answers are things that, you, uh, that are true. Uh, Subtalar rigidity uh, is a contraindication to performing the transfer, and so most of you got that right as well. 16-year-old female complains of foot pain with ambulation. She previously underwent clubfoot uh, soft tissue releases at five months of age. Each of the following are complications or late deformities associated with clubfoot surgery except. So this is a question that may be a little bit challenging for some of you because the Ponsetti method has become so popular as a form of treatment uh, that many uh, of the post-surgical problems that we used to be seen quite commonly in pediatric orthopedics fortunately have gone away but uh, it's still important to know the answer to this question because there's still lots of patients out there. Uh, Post-surgical deformities include uh, those that are due to undercorrection or recurrence and that includes medial spin in intoing as well as recurrent equinus or the other family of uh, problems that are seen as a result of treatment is overcorrection and so overcorrection is typically uh, a rigid flat foot deformity with hind foot valgus calcaneus gait uh, and weak uh, push-off. In addition, because of the extensive nature of the release, there's damage to the vascular supply of the talus. There can also be an injury uh, to the perineus longus, uh, which results in a dorsal bunion and dorsiflexion of the first ray. The stiffness is common, as is pain. But knowing that, we see that dorsal bunion is listed as an answer for uh, secondary deformity, as is osteonecrosis of the talus rigid flat foot, intoing gait, but tarsal tunnel syndrome is a deformity that is not seen following surgical uh, release of the club foot. I can see that only 35% of you uh, answered that uh, question correctly, and I think that's a reflection, as I said, of the fact that these patients are not as common uh, as they used to be. But it's important still to know uh, what kind of iatrogenic or post-surgical problems uh, still occur. Next is femur fracture. Which of the following patients would be the best candidate for submuscular bridge plating? This is a question that uh, really covers the topic of treatment of femur fractures in the ambulatory child uh, or the uh, child who is school age. So children in between the ages of 5 and 11 have a variety of treatment options uh, for treating their femur fractures. Uh, and the uh, decision-making criteria isn't always straightforward. And making these decisions depends on uh, a variety of factors, including the age and maturity of the patient, the weight of the patient, the length stability of the fracture, the location of the fracture, whether it is proximal third, diaphyseal, or distal third, and the presence or absence of polytrauma or multiple extremity injuries in one patient. Last, uh, surgeon comfort is an important thing to consider as well because obviously whatever is most facile in your hands and that you can do well 
uh, is probably the best choice for the patient. So this is an example of a uh, submuscular bridge plate, uh, which is one of the options for a length unstable fracture. So length unstable fractures are those with comminution or uh, a large oblique uh, fracture pattern. And these uh, typically are treated with open reduction internal fixation with plating, minimally invasive or submuscular plating, as well as possibly external fixation, and occasionally in the upper ends of this age range or in the larger children uh, with uh, reamed rigid uh, intramedullary nails uh, that, are, uh, that have a trochanteric starting point. Back to the question, the best candidate for submuscular bridge plating, you can see uh, the preferred response is three, which is a child who's in the upper age limit, who is above the nail or above the weight uh, restriction that's recommended for uh, treatment using flexible intramedullary nails, uh, but also with a length unstable fracture that requires an implant that's going to hold it out to length. Uh, so three is the correct response, and most of you got that right. Next, medial epicondyle fractures. Physician from an emergency room at a referring hospital calls you about a pediatric patient with a closed elbow dislocation. Which of the following fracture patterns, figures A through E, is most commonly associated with a pediatric elbow dislocation? So you can see here that they have a variety of injuries represented. The first x-ray on the left is an example of a supracondylar humerus fracture with perhaps an associated lateral condyle fracture. The next is a, a medial epicondyle fracture. You can see that the medial epicondyle is displaced in an older child. The one next to that, uh, moving from left to right, is a displaced type 2 supracondylar humerus fracture, which is an extension type injury there. Above that is a uh, badly displaced type 3 supracondylar humerus fracture. And below that is a montasia fracture with a proximal ulnar shaft fracture and an associated anterior radial head dislocation. Medial epicondyle fractures uh, result from an avulsion by the uh, flexor pronator muscular wad. Uh, and uh, they have uh, some controversy regarding treatment of these types of injuries. Open reduction internal fixation is indicated for those injuries that have been entrapped in the joint following an elbow dislocation. An elbow dislocation is a common uh, associated injury with this type of fracture. And in fact, any time an elbow dislocation is recognized in a child, you have to be concerned that there might be an associated medial epicondyle fracture. Uh, the true displacement uh, is usually seen on an oblique film. This is usually an internal oblique x-ray. You have to be aware that the ulnar nerve may have been dragged into the joint uh, after a reduction of the elbow if the uh, fragment is uh, contained within the joint as well. Displacement of uh, 2 to 10 millimeters has been cited as an indication for treatment. Uh, so there's quite a bit of variety and really no consensus on um, how much displacement is uh, enough to necessitate treatment. And it depends a lot on the activity as well as the hand dominance of the injured child. So you can see these x-rays, uh, the two above show an elbow dislocation that has been reduced with uh, the medial epicondylar fragment uh, visible within the joint. And you can see the capitellar ossification center, which is normal, uh, and just medial to that is the medial epicondyle fragment, which is entrapped within the joint. And on the lateral x-ray, you can see as well uh, that the uh, medial epicondyle fracture, uh, which should be posterior on that lateral film, at the level of the bottom of what appears to be the hourglass uh, pattern of ossification in the distal humeral metaphysis uh, is uh, at the level of the capitellum and within the joint. And below you can see the C-arm images after this fracture has been reduced and uh, the elbow uh, is now concentrically reduced as well. And you can see just a hint of an air arthrogram as well, just distal to the capitellum on the AP and the lateral views. 
Back to the question, uh, the pediatric patient with an elbow dislocation, which fracture pattern is associated with it? And we now know that that is a medial epicondyle fracture. And you can see another example of that uh, on this x-ray with the medial epicondyle being uh, outlined by the black arrow and its uh, normal bed uh, being outlined by the white arrow, as well as the presence of this fracture dislocation. About two-thirds of you got that question right. The most common wrong answer was the uh, Montasia fracture. It's just important to know what they're talking about is true elbow dislocation uh, of the ulna humeral joint and, and not uh, a radial head dislocation. Next is lateral condyle fractures. An eight-year-old boy falls on his right upper extremity and presents to the emergency room with the radiographs shown in figures A and B. He has exquisite tenderness to palpation along the lateral aspect of his elbow. What additional radiographic view will likely demonstrate the maximum degree of fracture displacement? As you can see on the radiographs that are provided, not uh, clear-cut exactly what the injury pattern is. The radial uh, head is well aligned with the capitellum. Uh, the proximal ulna is well aligned with the distal humerus. The medial epicondyle appears to be in its appropriate position. You can see just a hint of a fracture line in the metaphysis proximal to the capitellum in the lateral condyle, uh, which many times on the AP film is very difficult to detect. Uh, similarly, on the lateral x-ray, it's very difficult to see the displacement of the fracture. The lateral condyle fractures are the second most common uh, fractures around the elbow in children. They are really divided into those fractures that have a, an articular hinge, which keeps them non-displaced or minimally displaced and makes it a stable injury, versus those uh, where the fracture line extends from the metaphysis all the way into the joint across the articular uh, surface. And so this is a displaced intraarticular injury with synovial fluid bathing it. And so uh, this is at high risk for non-union. So x-ray evaluation of lateral condyle fracture should include internal rotation oblique images as well. Uh, an MRI or an arthrogram can be useful to visualize that hinge. Initial treatment for those minimally displaced injuries can be splinting followed by casting with frequent follow-up and very close follow-up. In fact, they should probably be x-rayed weekly until uh, you can see bridging fracture callus uh, over the metaphysis. Displaced fractures typically require open reduction and internal fixation through a lateral approach. Posterior lateral dissection should be avoided as this is the source of the blood supply of the distal lateral uh, humerus and the lateral condyle. The complication that's most commonly described or most commonly talked about, although it's not the most common complication, is non-union, which leads to cubitus valgus uh, and subsequent tardy ulnar nerve palsy. You can see that, once again, uh, the child with the lateral condyle fracture, which view will, will uh, show his fracture displacement the greatest, and it's the internal oblique radiograph. And you can see that answer two was uh, achieved by about two-thirds of you. About a third of you said the external oblique radiograph, and uh, that's just one of those things that needs to be, uh, that you have to commit to memory. Next is infantile blounts disease. 32-month-old male with severe infantile blounts disease has been treated with full-time bracing for the past year. At most recent follow-up, the varus deformity of his bilateral legs has worsened despite compliance with bracing. What treatment is now recommended? So infantile blounts disease is progressive infantile tibia vera. Uh, it affects the proximal medial tibial uh, physis and epiphysis. Uh, typically, the onset is prior to three years of age. Uh, the hallmark is that it is a progressive worsening of their pre-existing genuvarum that most children are born with. Uh, Lang and Scholl classification uh, has been described uh, to describe not necessarily the severity of the injury, but the maturity of the patient as well. And so uh, by Lang and Scholl's criteria, 
Type 1 are those children who are very early in the process and may have just some medial beaking without a true step-off of the metaphysis. Type 2 shows a step-off of the metaphysis. Type 3 starts to show some ossification and drooping down of the epiphysis. Type 4, 5, and 6 are showing uh, progressive uh, deformity and bar formation of the proximal medial tibia. Uh, the metaphyseal diaphyseal angle as described by Drennan uh, is useful and is a, really a measure of the obliquity of the proximal metaphysis relative to the, uh, the proximal tibial shaft. An angle greater than 13 uh, is representative of a situation where the child needs uh, continuing follow-up. Uh, greater than 16 has been described as uh, children who are all destined for progression. Those less than 11 almost all resolve. So surgical treatment for infantile Blount's disease uh, is indicated in those patients who have failed bracing, uh, those children who are Langenschuld stage 3 or greater, or with late presentation uh, despite uh, no bracing. These children will have uh, best results if their proximal tib-fib osteotomy uh, is uh, done before the age of 4. Technically, uh, the osteotomy should be done to overcorrect the proximal tibia into valgus of 5 to 10 degrees. In addition, because many times these children have associated internal tibial torsion, a rotational correction is necessary. Uh, because of the high risk of uh, compartment syndrome uh, due to the uh, uh, proximity to the proximal calf vasculature and the recurrent vessels through the interosseous membrane, uh, a prophylactic anterior compartment uh, or four-compartment fasciotomy should be performed. Older children or children who've had recurrence may need physial bar resection as well. Getting back to the question, a less than three-year-old child with severe Blount's disease has failed bracing. Uh, and now the uh, next step in treatment is uh, bilateral proximal uh, tib-fib osteotomies, and that's response number three, and most of you got that. That's all for this pediatrics question review session. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets Audio Review, a daily podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thank you so much, and see you tomorrow.